Well, Gerard, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. I thought since you always sing, I would open with a little bit of, I know not all of our listeners celebrate the Christmas holiday, but at least here in New England, it's getting cold. And you always know that, well, Hanukkah's over. It, was, it seemed to be quite early this year, but maybe not. But that there's a stretch of like, the world's going to shut down at least for a day or two coming up between the new year and those of us that celebrate the Christmas holiday. And it feels like it's nothing but a sprint right up to that point. It's like you're spending money on gifts. People are asking you for money in the form of donations before the end of the year. And it's just nonstop. So that's where I'm at, my friend. How are you doing today? First of all, it was great to hear you sing. So listeners, I think this may be only the second time this year, and I'm being generous with second, probably the first, where you sang a lyric. So amongst the yeah, it doesn't happen things often. that you have, that you bring to the <laughs> table, so much of a renaissance you know, woman. I have to tell you, I was the lead in the Plymouth, Canton, some middle school, I don't remember which one, maybe the Central Middle School production of Bye Bye Birdie, Gerard. Why? I'm not shocked. Speechless. Not shocked. Yeah. Speechless. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. It, there you go. There you go. Yeah. Go with it. No. <laughs> well, I listen, I'm glad you're doing well. We've got a couple stories to get to. And as I said, I have some general angst about the holidays, but I have some general angst about another thing. <laughs> Let me tell you what, what that is. What would that be? That would be the implications for universal pre-kindergarten in the Build Back Better bill that is now sitting with the Senate, has passed the House, looks like it's going to pass. Question is, in what form? Probably the form it's in now. And then the other question is when. Some are saying, I think that Schumer and others would like to see it happen now. Others are saying, yeah, right, we've got, like, we don't have other things to do. We're going to get to this in January. But Ben, digging into this a little bit, Gerard, and here's the deal. Some of the, the provisions around child care and universal pre-K, I think because this went through reconciliation, are very confusing. And some of the omissions, it seems to me, you could drive a truck through. But our friends at the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops and other places are reminding us that there are huge implications for faith-based providers, especially in the universal pre-K portion of the bill. It's kind of misleading because it leads with like, hey, we want a healthy, strong, mixed delivery system, which I will say in some of the states, in the states that have done universal pre-K, and by universal pre-K, I mean free preschool for three and four-year-olds or four and five-year-olds or all of the year-olds if you're, if you're doing it well, which states aren't there yet, you can be a school district that has a pre-K program, or you can be a child care provider, a private child care provider. And yes, you can be a faith-based institution. And a lot of families across this country, whether or not they are people of faith, rely on different kinds of faith-based institutions for child care and for preschool. So the concerning part of this bill is it looks like, unlike with child care development block grants, which is how we usually fund the federal portion of pre-K in this country, the Build Back Better plan doesn't mention child care development block grants in the universal pre-K section, which is leading folks to believe that this is going to be direct receipt of financial aid for any private institutions which choose to participate. And as you know, Gerard, if private institutions that are faith-based are direct recipients of federal funds, meaning they don't get them through an indirect route, then they can't teach or actively engage in religious activities. So for a lot of faith-based providers, that could cause them to say, hey, states, if you take this Build Back Better money, we're not going to participate in the program. 
And that could mean big changes to the landscape of how we deliver pre-kindergarten in this country. So something that I wanted to make all of our listeners aware of, lots of folks are sort of writing about this as it comes up to the last minute. So that's that's the bad news today, Gerard. That's where this morning my brain is going for the bad news, but kiss your brain because there is some good news that I wanted to support. I wanted to shout out an article in the Wall Street Journal by Mayor Michael Bloomberg, former mayor of New York, and he made an announcement that I am sure you've read that he's making a big bet, a big investment, $750 million in charter schools. Very good to hear. The article's great because it sort of goes through what you and I already know, which is that parents need charters as an alternative. Many of them are high-performing. When they're not high-performing, they close. And that especially now, we need to... Charters have been sort of up against the wall for a while. We really need to make investments in them. One thing I will say to Mayor Bloomberg, who's saying he's investing in new seats, is please, sir, could you also maybe invest some money in helping states that have draconian charter school caps get those caps lifted? Because we can't take your money and create new seats when our legislature won't allow it, as happens here in Massachusetts in a place like Boston with a wait list of way upwards of 20,000 kids. So... I've said a lot, Gerard. I'm sorry to ramble on you. I know you've got stories of the week to get to, too. What are you thinking? Question for you, because you know way more about pre-K investments than I do for the program. Are you saying, or am I hearing, that possibly private faith-based providers will be left out indirectly? Indirectly. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what it's looking like. And like I said, you can drive a bus through the omissions, but this is like what's not in the bill speaks louder. And so advocacy groups for faith-based schools are saying, ho, 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 let's be careful. We should be doing this what we always have by giving faith-based providers certificates, which are essentially an indirect way of them receiving federal funds so that they can operate, but not having to give up their ability to engage in religious activities. And it's looking like under Build Back Better, if they choose to participate, it's a big trade-off, which will push many of them out of the pre-K market. And we know that with a lot of the CARES money that uh, trickled down to the states, we know that private schools weren't given, let's just say, the fair share or the benefit <laughs> yeah. of the investments. And so something like this can be seen as yet another possibly, let's just say, unintended consequence so as not to put any intention or bad will on what may come of this. But we do know that there are people who are anti-faith-based schools for a host of reasons. Let's just say the better angels of our nature say, no, it's not that it's a procedural change. Well, if it's a procedural change, listen to the people on the ground who actually have to implement the work because they're telling you don't go that route. They're saying it for a reason. So that's part this of This is what we're hoping. And you're optimistic. Thank you for that. <laughs> Michael Bloomberg, 700 million. Is it to two or three organizations? Is it to states? Is it his own foundation? You apply to it? He's going to be he's going to be helping mayors invest in high quality charter school seats. Yeah. Got it. Well, Mayor, as you know, we have a new governor here in Virginia, Governor-elect Youngkin, who wants to expand what he calls innovative schools, which can include charter schools. And while we only have seven charter schools in the state, Mayor, what I would say is if Virginia decides to apply for funding in terms of mayors, include the innovative school as part of your concept for charter, because it's going to take a couple of years to move the needle in ways that we want. And in the interim, mayors want to do things that are innovative that could include public schools that are charter-like. But until we get to 
actual charter schools, consider Virginia for some of that money. So my two cents. That is a really good suggestion. And I think that there are a couple of organizations that would get on board with that. And something that I hope he'll listen to, I should also add that this money is to make needed improvements in supporting charter schools in ways to help them expand, serve more kids, existing charter schools instead of just new seats as well. So it's pretty exciting stuff. You've got a different story of the week this week, Gerard. What's on your radar? So my story is build back better, but from a different institution. So this story is about uh, Maricel Garcia. She's a 44-year-old woman who is going to graduate soon from Trinity College. Initially, people were clapped because A, she's a woman who's finishing higher ed. And while we know that there are more women in higher ed than men, that's a relatively new phenomenon. So yes, we still clap for the number of women who are earning a degree. The fact that she is 44 in and of itself is uh, something to celebrate. She's also a Latina, another reason. And then you'll find out, well, one reason that she's graduated at 44 is because she spent two stints in prison for a crime. And so she was a good student in high school. She said she wanted to go to college. And like so many of us, when she finished high school, she realized two things. Number one, college costs a lot of money. And number two, I don't have the funds to go. She said she received a few scholarships, but that still wasn't enough to close the gap. And she even looked at a local community college. So she decided, like millions of students do every year, you know what? I'll always go back to college. Let me go to work. And it makes a lot of sense. You and I have talked about the importance of having students go directly into the workforce to save money, to build social skills, to build other skills. So when you go to college, if you choose to do so, you're going in not only with more money, also better skill sets. Well, during that time period, her mom was diagnosed with cancer. And so she worked at a law firm and then used her inside knowledge to embezzle $40,000 from the company. That led to her getting a six-year prison sentence, and she began to serve time in prison. She started taking a few classes while she was in there, wanted to better herself. She then left, and within five years, she was rearrested for violation of her parole because of larceny and some other activities. So she's in prison again, and she decides, you know what, I'm going to get pretty serious about college. So Trinity College had a program where she could enroll. And as you know, I'm a big supporter of education in prison. So she's one of the people who said, I'm going to use this to advance myself. So fast forward, when she went back to prison the second time, get what she said. She said, I was surrounded by the daughters of the women who were incarcerated with me the first time. And I said, like you, wow. And I'm pretty sure a lot of our listeners are saying, wow. But let's put this in perspective. At the same time that children of incarcerated on average are six times more likely to be incarcerated themselves, we currently have at least one in four minors in the United States, that's five million children, who've had a parent incarcerated in prison or in jail at some point in their life. And so at some point from a research perspective, I'm not shocked. I also realized this from the research of Dr. Baha'i Muhammad at Howard University, who's written a lot of research on children of the incarcerated and why some students, in fact, through resiliency and other things, don't go to prison, do well. Here's an instance where she said, hey, I was surrounded. And so she's gonna graduate in the article. They also talked about the Second Chance Pell Program which was put to an end in 1994, 
with the 1994 crime bill that basically said if you're incarcerated, even if you qualify for a Pell Grant because you meet the income requirement, and right now the Pell Grant program for free world students is the largest post-secondary grant program in the country working for students from lower income homes. If you're a state or federal prisoner, you no longer qualify for a Pell Grant. And so they talk about that in the article. Well, through some private and public investments, she was able to go to school. She also talked about the importance of having a library there as well. So her story is a good one. It's a story about second, third chances, but it also raises other things that we as taxpayers, we as people who want to better our society have to think about. There are a lot of people who don't support providing Pell Grants to people who are incarcerated. They believe that in 2021, and people believe that in 1994. They believe that free world students who didn't commit a crime are taking second mortgages on their homes to send their children to school, while people who are incarcerated are going to college for free. There are two myths. Number one, many people who go to college, even without a Pell Grant, aren't going for free. Many students are self-paid. Mm -hmm. They bring in money from their family. And then number two, you have private and public sector philanthropic groups and organizations and alumni of universities who invest money into places like, for example, Bard College to make that move forward. Well, we know that right now the U.S. Department of Education is meeting with a subcommittee to talk about students in prison and Pell Grants. There's several members on that committee. Two of them were formerly incarcerated. One of them, Stanley Anders, is a professor at Howard Medical School. So this is a good feel-good story, but not everybody buys into the fact that we should pay for people who are incarcerated. What are your thoughts? My thoughts are, I have a question, and yep. that is, Gerard, and I'm sure you probably know the answer to this question. So this is, yeah, it's a feel-good story. It's an exceptional story. It's a story that needs to be told. But for the skeptics, for those that say, no, 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 this is a program that shouldn't be, What's the return on investment for giving Pell Grants in college, giving second chance grants, helping folks who haven't had the opportunities, right? Helping to break that cycle so that you're not seeing the same women you were with in prison, you're not seeing their daughters. What's the ROI? Can we quantify it? That's actually a good question. So let's look at what scholars at the Rand Corporation had to say. They conducted the largest analysis of correctional education programs in the country covering 30 years. And by correctional education programs, that includes adult basic education, adult secondary education, vocational, as well as post-secondary. So your question, here are four returns or four things to consider. Number one, incarcerated people who participate in correctional education have a 43% lower likelihood of returning to prison than their peers who did not participate in the program. Number two, incarcerated people who participate in correctional education have 13% higher odds of post-release employment compared to those who did not. Third, incarcerated people who participated in vocational programs had odds of obtaining post-release employment that were 28% higher than individuals who did not or did not. And lastly, a $1 investment in correctional education reduces incarceration costs by 4 to $5 during the first years of- Wow. And that's just across the board. If you look at the research from our Vera Institute, who has a contract from the Department of Ed to evaluate the 100 plus programs that are part of the Second Chance Federal Program, you've got over 22,000 people who've gone through the program and they've earned associate degrees, baccalaureate degrees, certificates, and they're finishing. Some are getting jobs, some are going into post-secondary institutions. But here's something we overlook. 
the parole officers and the wardens who say these programs make their prisons safer. It makes yeah. those who are involved in incarcerated students more productive. And it even gets parole officers and guards also involved in rehabilitation in ways we see education or really prison is only for punishment, not rehabilitation. Wow. I mean, so see, to me, those are some staggering statistics. And I think that too often we don't hear it framed that way, right? And so for those who aren't swayed or compelled by a heart argument or a moral argument or an emotional argument, just the data on the yep. economic return on investment should be compelling enough. I have to tell you, Gerard, I'm very proud to say, and she'll be calling you for an interview, my sixth grade daughter, they have to do a sixth grade research project that they spend the whole year doing, and it culminates in a presentation. And she chose to study the criminal justice system. She chose to study some of these issues that you're talking about. So I'm going to take all of this information and pass it on to her. So thank you for that. This is a really enlightening article. And yeah, we need to get this woman as a guest on our podcast. So no So if you need more resources, as you know, Elizabeth English Smith and I co-authored a book in 2019, and it's called Education for Liberation, The Politics of Promise and Reform Inside and Beyond America's Prisons. You can find it on a number of sites, but it is one place to go. And it's an edited book with really good, smart people from different walks of life, including people who were incarcerated and talked about what education did for them. That's amazing. I think I met some of those people at your conference a few years back, several years back. Okay, Gerard, coming up after this, we're going to be talking to Dr. Mark Seifer. So cool. I'm going to lead with, this guy is a handwriting expert. He's also a very accomplished author. So I don't think we're going to spend much time talking to him about handwriting because he is like the definitive biographer of Nikola Tesla. So looking forward, as always, to that conversation coming up in just a minute. Welcome back, Learning Curve listeners. We are here with Dr. Mark Seifer. He is a writer, university lecturer, and also a handwriting expert, which I find to be really neat. Never met one. Dr. Seifer has been featured in the Washington Post, Scientific American, Publishers Weekly, Rhode Island Monthly, Investors Daily, MIT's Technology Review, and the New York Times. In Europe, he's appeared in The Economist, Nature, and New Scientists. With publications in Wired, Cerebrum, Civilization, Extraordinary Science, Lawyers Weekly, Journal of Psychohistory, and Psychiatric Clinics of North America, Dr. Seifer is obviously internationally recognized as an expert on the inventor Nikola Tesla, which is also the subject of his doctoral dissertation. He is the author of the acclaimed biography, Wizard, The Life and Times of Nikola Tesla. Dr. Seifer, welcome to The Learning Curve. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're excited to have you. I mean, I feel like I could probably ask you lots of questions about being a handwriting expert, but I do want to talk to you about the work that you are so very well known for. And these days, now I have to say, I've been, my husband has a long commute and I've been bothering him that we need to save up so that he can get a nice, clean, electric car. And that's what the name Tesla is normally associated with these days. But you have your leading expert biographer on the man, the physicist, the inventor. We have a lot of just education-minded folks, teachers, and others who listen to this show. Could you give them sort of the highlights, if you will, of what you would want students especially to know about Tesla's life? 
Well, Tesla was born in 1856 in Smiljan, Croatia, which as the crow flies, is about 150 miles from Rome across the Adriatic Sea. But I've been there. It's uh, really a backwards place way up in the mountains. And he lived along a, a long plain, and way in the distance was the Daneric Alps. So I think he definitely saw lightning storms in the Alps and then travel across the plain towards his home, and I think that influenced him. His father was a Greek Orthodox priest, and his mother was related to the regional bishop, so she was in the higher you know, echelon. So he was part of the educated elite. And after high school, he went to the University of Graz, which is like the MIT of Austria at the time, very important college. And uh, in fact, one of the teachers there was Ernst Mach, who influenced Albert Einstein. And then later he went on to the University of Prague. He was an advanced mathematics student. And in fact, the, the, the math teachers would give him extra problems. I've seen the calculations that he's done, and he was pretty incredible. So at the time, there was a problem of the day, and the problem of the day was that alternating current could only travel about a mile. And the, the reason was because electricity, by its nature, changes its direction of flow at thousands of times a second. So think of, let's say, a stream going downstream, then upstream, then downstream, and upstream at thousands of times a second. How do you make that go in one direction? That was the problem. So what they did was they eliminated the upstream and just created the downstream, and that's called direct current. And that was uh, there was a commutator which removed the up. So that was the problem of the day, and Tesla felt you could remove the commutator and somehow harness alternating current unencumbered. And his professor, Professor Poschel, said that this was a, a situation that was impossible to do and that it could not be done and you were wasting your time. I know you're brilliant, Mr. Tesla, but this is a waste of time. So Tesla spent the next five years working on that problem, and he solved it by essentially creating two circuits out of phase with each other, and that created the induction motor, which changed the world. But it took a brilliant scientist to really look at this and have the intuition to feel that electricity by its nature, we should be able to harness electricity by its nature. We didn't have to somehow alter it to direct current to do that. And so that really is a lot of his background. I love that story in part because I hope that all of the teachers and parents and others out there are listening because it feels like with so many great minds and great inventors, there was always somebody that told them, like, it's impossible. Don't bother. Quit while you're ahead, kid. And it's the great minds that persist past all of that. So you've talked about alternating current, which is what Tesla is very well known for. And you mentioned a couple of his other, like the induction motor, but there were 300 patents. He had 300 patents worldwide and tons of gadgets. I'm looking here at our notes that say radio controlled technology. My two little boys who just got a remote control car, one of them for his birthday. I don't know if, that's, if that helps. Maybe that's not the same thing at all. Shows you how much I know about science. But could you tell us about a couple more of his inventions? And I wonder too, if you could give us a little insight into what you would have teachers and others take away about like how we focus on STEM and, and innovation in school. How do we get kids essentially to think and behave more like Tesla? Well, I think in terms of today, what is the problem of today? And the problem of today is how to kill this COVID virus, how to kill any virus, really. And I'm working on another book. It's called COVID's Achilles Heel. And it has to do with ozone therapy, that ozone is another derivative of oxygen. Oxygen is O2 and ozone is O3. And this O3 will kill viruses. 
So that's the problem of today. The problem today is how do we stop this pandemic? How do we cure cancer? How do we cure this virus? The problem of that day was how do you harness alternating current? And Tesla figured that out. Uh, and before I get to some of his other inventions, I just want to tell you a little about his induction motor. He calculated how many man hours he would save on the planet when the motor came into being. So instead of having a horse plow the field, you'd have a motor plow the field. So motors would do the work instead of animals and humans. And so he actually calculated how many man hours per person for the entire planet that he was saving. That was his mindset at that time, which to me was, you mentioned you know, the remote control car that you've got in your son. Here is Tesla's genius. Tesla invented remote control robotics. What Tesla understood was that when you have, he had a remote control boat, the kids that are playing with these cars, they don't think that the cars have intelligence inside them. They think, I'll, I'll make a right, I'll tell it to go right or tell it to go left, I'll go tell it fast or slow. But Tesla saw the machine itself as a primitive thinking machine. And so he's the first person really to, to invent a robot. And it's out of that very device that, that you bought your son. So he looks at what we see as just a toy, he sees the inherent intelligence inside that toy as the basis of how all learning takes place. So I think that is one of his most brilliant insights. Sort of like a change of a shift of mindset. So talking about character traits and how one thinks about a problem, we have had recently on this show, not to be provocative here, but a biographer of Thomas Edison, who of course was a rival with Tesla at the time. And they're both great renowned inventors that gave our, our world, our society so, so much. Can you tell us a little bit about their relationship, like the war of currents? And I'm also curious to know, what is it that you see in both men? Like what similarities did they possess and what differences? Yeah, Edison at the time was known as the Napoleon of invention, the wizard of Menlo Park. And Tesla couldn't wait to meet him. He was actually working for Edison in Paris. And in my book, Wizard, I discovered a trip that Edison took that's never been in, written in any other biography, that he went to Paris and met Tesla in about 1882, 1883. And Tesla came to the United States in 1884 to, to work for Edison. And he wanted to give him his alternating current machine. As I mentioned a little bit before, the induction motor was, it wasn't just an induction motor. Tesla is the inventor of what we can call the hydroelectric power system. So uh, if we're looking at what's happening in 1884 when Tesla comes to New York to work for Edison, electricity is all direct current. They're all using commutators. They're all eliminating the upstream. So by eliminating the upstream, you actually lose 90% of the efficiency of transmitting electricity. So Edison and Westinghouse and L.U. Thompson, these were three major companies, had about 3,000 power plants throughout the 1880s. And they were only transmitting electricity about one mile with power dropping off over distance and only for lighting homes. So if you were near the power plant, which would be running on coal, your lights would be bright. And if you were a mile away, your lights would be dim. You couldn't run a refrigerator or a toaster. You could only light light bulbs. That was the situation before Tesla. So Tesla now meets the great wizard of Menlo Park, and he wants to talk Edison into using alternating current. Well, how can you harness a current that's 
changing its directional flow at thousands of times a second. That was Edison's thinking. So Edison didn't want to hear anything about it. Westinghouse was dabbling in AC, and Westinghouse was a competitor of Edison's. So Westinghouse said, I don't want to hear anything about this. So Tesla said, well, I'll do the best I can with your direct current. I think I can increase its efficiency by you know, 15 or 20 percent. He said, if you could really do that, there's $50,000 in it for you. And of course, Tesla achieves all that. And Edison was said, I, I was just joking. I wasn't really going to give it 50000 I mean, it's an American joke. So Tesla quit. And that was the basis of the animosity that existed between them. But they're two brilliant scientists. They're two brilliant inventors. And when Tesla's laboratory burnt to the ground in 1895, Edison provided a laboratory for him in the interim until the time that, that he could find his own lab. So after the War of the Comets, because Edison realized that he, he was wrong eventually, because once the hydroelectric power system was put in, which was Tesla's system at Niagara Falls, you could transmit energy hundreds of miles and you could run factories. So the DC system that they were using, that Edison was using in the 1880s, as compared to Tesla's AC system, I think is kind of comparing a horse and buggy to a jet plane. There's just no comparison, whatever. The, Tesla created a quantum leap in the field of energy transmission. And on top of that, if you look at the hydroelectric power system, it's free energy in the sense that the waterfall, you don't have to pay for the waterfall, and it's non-polluting, and it's renewable. Because as long as Niagara Falls falls, as long as the waterfall continues, you can continue to run electric power without polluting the world. So Tesla was very aware of not sapping the earth of oil and coal, of, of its natural elements, of running on what he called the wheelwork of nature. And his invention eliminated the need for 3,000 power plants operating on coal. So he also helped clean the environment. And I think he's the single most important person for helping slowing down global warming. Because if he had not come in when he did, we'd still be using, perhaps now, coal-operated power plants and still some DC equipment. Even when I was a kid, there was still some DC equipment out there that was being used. So that was the basis of the animosity that existed between them. Before Niagara Falls was, uh, Westinghouse won the contract by buying Tesla's patents, Edison began electrocuting cats and dogs and, and a horse and even an elephant with AC to try and show that it was dangerous. But in fact, people were dying with DC machines as well as AC machines. And that's when Tesla decided to send electricity through his body to show that it was safe if you knew what you were doing. So he would send hundreds of thousands of volts through his body. It was very weak current and his body would be lit up and it was a way, it was a PR campaign to, to show that if you knew what you were doing, AC was fine. And so that's some of the unusual experience between Tesla and Edison. They were friends and they were enemies and then they were friends again. I want to follow up on that because Tesla lived in an era in which big American businesses were on the ascent and they were colliding with the world of inventions and patents. Could you talk about Tesla's deep struggle with business and commercial aspects of his work and what students today can learn about scientific discoveries and their relationship with the hard realities of finance and business? Yes. Well, I was talking about Tesla's invention of the remote control robot, which leads into all of this. What Tesla did to, in order to control his remote control boat, which was in 1898, he created two different frequencies. And what Tesla realized was that the problem would be, let's say you had a, a, you know, a torpedo and you send it to another ship, what would prevent the enemy ship from using their own 
electrical machine and have the torpedo turn around and come back and hit your ship. So you wanted selective tuning. You wanted to create separate channels. And what Tesla realized was that you could multiply the frequencies. So he created oscillators. He's the inventor of, well, they call it Hertzian waves, but they're really Tesla waves, the oscillators that are used for the frequencies for wireless communication. So he invented wireless communication. Not only did he invent wireless communication, he invented the ability to create an unlimited number of wireless channels, cell phone technology. So he goes back to, you know, he's in Colorado Springs in 1899, sending electricity around the world. And then he comes back to New York and forms a partnership with J.P. Morgan, who's the richest, most powerful man in the world. There's nobody comparable today to Morgan. You could put Bill Gates, Elon Musk, uh, Ted Turner, and a couple other people together, and you still would not have the power that Morgan had. He controlled everything. I have cartoons where you see Morgan as a giant, and you see the President of the United States, the Kaiser of Germany, and the uh, King of England as all small people underneath Morgan. That's who Tesla forms a relationship with. He goes to build a wireless communication system, a world wireless communication system out on Long Island. And he gets $150,000 from Morgan. I don't know what 150000 is in today's dollars in 1901, but it's in the millions. Uh, and he runs out of money. And one of the reasons he runs out of money, he's in competition with Marconi. And uh, once he finds out that Marconi is pirating his apparatus, he decides to double the size of the tower without telling Morgan. Morgan was in Europe at the time. And he figures if I double the size of the tower, not only can I send electricity, wireless impulses to Europe, I can send it across the Pacific, around the entire world, to Australia, you name it. So just by doubling the size of the tower, the revenues would come in at a geometric rate. And he tries to tell this to Morgan, but Morgan sees it as a breach of contract, and Morgan refuses to give him money to complete his tower. The sad thing about this story, you're talking about business relationships. Tesla definitely breached the contract with Morgan. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but Morgan, but he's trying to say, Morgan, uh, we're talking about changing the world. He's envisioning exactly what you and I are doing right now, and that is you're in Virginia, I'm in uh, Rhode Island, we're speaking he said, you'll be able to speak from here to Australia as if you're sitting across the room from each other. I'm trying to create a world communication system. So, all right, I doubled the, the tower, but look, at I'm advancing the world a century. Can't we transcend the contract? And Morgan said, no, I promised you 150. I gave you the 150,000. You didn't do it. But what Morgan also did was he blocked other investors from investing in the project. Jacob Schiff, Thomas Fortune Ryan, William uh, uh, Henry Clay Frick. Morgan had given Frick $60 million for his percentage of U.S. steel. Carnegie got another $300 million. So Frick was very, very wealthy. For Frick to come and give Tesla another hundred, two hundred thousand was pocket change, but Morgan prevented him. So that's the sad story of what happened in big business. So I would say that the lesson is don't breach a contract that you have with somebody. I mean, I think that's the ultimate lesson here. Just to follow up on the idea of the contract and his cantankerous relationship with big business or they with he, we're also talking about Andrew Carnegie and Westinghouse and others. Knowing what you know now, is there something Tesla could have done differently? If you said, you know what, don't breach the contract, that's one thing. Let's just say he did not breach it. Do you think the business community would have treated him better? Or is there something about geniuses and being ahead of their time that makes the kind of master, non-master relationship like this pretty common? 
I think people resent people that are outstanding in certain ways. That was part of it. Tesla claimed he received impulses from outer space that didn't help his PR. I think, though, he was really trying to change the mind of one man. And had he changed Morgan's mind, uh, we would have had cell phone technology in the early 1900s. We'd have had radio 20 years ahead of its time. So I think that is, is really what could have happened. There's individual people. I mean, look at Steve Jobs, for instance. He creates Apple Computer. He lost his company. He was basically kicked out of the company. And for various reasons, fortunately for the world, he was let back into the company. So even the greats like Jobs gets thrown out of their own company for various reasons. So I agree with you that oftentimes the genius is thrown out of a company or put on the outs because they're not understood. But look at the monies that wireless communication has generated. I love football. I watch them all the time. I mean, I can't believe a fullback or a linebacker will make $40, $50, 60000000 million. Where's all this money coming from? It's coming from advertising, but really it's coming from Tesla's invention of wireless communication and global communication. So he's trying to tell Morgan the money's going to come in in fistfuls, and Morgan doesn't understand that it's a whole different paradigm. And, and that was the real sad story underneath this all. I'm a football fan as well. I'm in the, uh, here in Charlottesville, the University of Virginia, where we've been invited to a bowl game, in fact, in Boston. And you're right, advertising pays for a lot, not only for pro football, but college football as well. But you've given me a research project in terms of looking at wireless or communication advertising and what role its funds are used to generate this big thing we call college football and pro football. So let me go to my last question. Since you've published your book in the mid-1990s, Tesla's reputation has moved from relative obscurity to real notoriety. There are not only cars named after him, but when you think about someone who's smart, they'll say Tesla. In fact, at one point it was always Edison or Einstein. Well, now it's Tesla. It'll come up. Would you talk about how inventors and their works gain fame over time and why schools, children today should know about famous inventors and how maybe their stories can encourage them to do something great and genius in their lifetime? Yeah, Tesla's been my life's work. I've studied him since the 1970s, and I'm continually learning new things about him. I have a new book called Tesla Wizard at War, which is now out in audio and will be out as a physical book. And in it, I discuss Tesla's dynamic theory of gravity. I'd studied him for 20 or 30 years before I started to get into his dynamic theory of gravity. And I now think that I understand what it is. And it's a whole different way of looking at what gravity is. So you continually learn new things about Tesla. Another thing I learned recently about Tesla was that in the run-up to World War II, he had a particle beam weapon, of course, which I knew about. But we've now uncovered, I've uncovered letters between the president of the United States, Franklin Roosevelt, wanting to meet with Tesla because of the particle beam weapon during World War II. There was the fear that the Nazis would have the atom bomb. How would we stop an atom bomb from being delivered to the United States? And one possibility would be this laser Star Wars kind of a thing that Tesla was inventing. I've discovered that Tesla was negotiating with the higher-ups in uh, secret weapons development in Canada and uh, the British military. It was General McNaughton was uh, the head of secret weapons development for Canada, and Vannevar Bush was secret weapons development for the United States. And Tesla was negotiating with both these guys. After Tesla died, John G. Trump looked at his papers. Trump was happened to be 
uh, President Trump's uncle. It's an unbelievable story. But it was at MIT, and they were trying to figure out, was there really something to the particle beam weapon? So Tesla was constantly growing as a person. So he's in his 80s negotiating with uh, General McNaughton, who was uh, third in line to be head of Allied Forces. Eisenhower got the job, but he was third in line for that position, in negotiating with Franklin Roosevelt. I have declassified stuff from the Soviet Union. He was negotiating with Joseph Stalin. So Tesla constantly grew. And the more you study him, the more you yourself grow because you start to learn all these new things. This thing about the dynamic theory of gravity is a direct relationship to the God particle and what's happening in CERN of the super collider. So I would say that it's very good for students to study highly intelligent individuals. In the recent biography of Einstein, certainly worth reading by Isaacson, Edison, you know, how he invented and, of course, Tesla. Tesla invented an electric car. That's why the car was named after him. And Elon Musk is the Tesla of today. And that's why, you know, Tesla, that's one of the main reasons Tesla's name is, has come back. But, you know, a lot of the kids today, they don't know that it's named after a person. They just know the name Tesla, that it's a car. They don't know that it's an inventor underneath it all. So he's a fascinating guy that you just never stop learning once you really get into his life. You mentioned earlier that Tesla, of course, was an immigrant. We know that many leaders of startup companies, people who are earning patents are also immigrants to the United States. In fact, mainland China a couple of years ago surpassed the United States for the first time in the number of international patents filed. Is there something about the immigrant experience that leads into this? And or is there something about the American experience that is not encouraging enough that kind of entrepreneurial spirit? Yeah, I taught for 40 years in college, and I agree with you, the kids from the other countries. We live in a great country. I certainly think of it as the greatest country in the world. But I think Americans over time get complacent. And, and the new kids on the block that they come from other countries, they come to this great country and they want to work and, and make a name for themselves. We also get, you know, the people that go to college from other countries here are the cream of the crop. Sergey Brin helps starts Google. So I agree. I think that we should not be complacent. We should. I think that the cost of college is way too high, but it's very important for people to continue to learn. And that was one of the reasons why Tesla invented the induction motor. He actually writes about this. He said the less time people have manual labor, the more they can go back to school so that the intelligence of the planet will increase geometric proportions. He actually wrote on that very level that it's very important to be highly educated. I love reading. I love learning new things. And I think studying these kinds of individuals who are enlightening. We went to the UN to try and get Tesla's birthday as an international holiday. I thought it was a way that the whole world could get around one, like Thanksgiving here. It would be one event that the entire world would celebrate together. I said, why not Tesla's birthday? So that's some of my thinking along those lines. Well, speaking of reading, would love for you to read a passage. Yeah. It's early in my book. It's a quote from Tesla himself, and you really get into his genius here. So this is Nikola Tesla. The progressive development of man is vitally dependent on invention. It is the most important product of his creative brain. Its ultimate purpose is the complete mastery of mind over the material world, the harnessing of the forces of nature to human needs. 
This is the difficult task of the inventor who is often misunderstood and unrewarded, but he finds ample compensation in the pleasing exercises of his powers and in the knowledge of being one of that exceptionally privileged class without whom the race would have long ago perished in the bitter struggle against pitiless elements. Speaking for myself, I have already had my full measure of this exquisite enjoyment, so much that for many years my life was little short of continuous rapture. I think what he's saying here is he just loved his work. And I think that speaking to students, whatever you love, that's what you should do. Whatever it is, if you love something, do that. That will give you passion. And so he didn't see it as work. He saw it as enjoyment. And I certainly have tried to live my life that way, to do what I had a passion for. So that's what he's telling us. He's also telling us without the inventor, humans would have never made it. I think of the movie 2001, and you see the invention of the tool and how it evolves into the rocket ship. It's that concept, I think, that he's really talking about. Dr. Seifer, what a great sentiment to conclude on today. Thank you so much for your time and your insight. It was just a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Gerard. It was a great pleasure to be on your show. And this week's Tweet of the Week is from Education Next. It is a quote from a study of Florida's tax credit scholarship program. And it says, quote, we find that students attending schools with more competitive pressure made larger gains as program enrollment grew statewide than did students at schools with less market competition. This difference was more pronounced for low-income students. So for those of you who have absolutely no idea what I am talking about, this is a study by David Figlio and colleagues about the benefits of Florida's tax credit scholarship program, so a program that uses tax credit donations that corporations give in exchange for a tax credit to fund scholarships for eligible children, low-income children, to attend private schools. And this study found, in the study was published several years ago and then updated, but it found that there are benefits for the students who remain in public schools as well. So this is very similar to some of the competitive effect studies that we've seen of charter schools. And what, what they do is really, really neat. And they look at school districts where there's a lot of quote unquote market competition because a lot of kids qualify and have private schools nearby that they could use with a tax credit scholarship. And what they find, not surprising to those of us who have watched this for a while and know that not always, but man, a lot of the time market competition can work. The private school competition made the public schools sort of rise to the occasion and do better for those kids in terms of academic outcomes. So always great to read Education Next and thanks to them for doing such great work. And Gerard, next week, we've got a really exciting show. We're going to be talking about the case being heard by SCOTUS, I think the day that this podcast is being released on Wednesday. And that case is out of Maine. It's Carson v. Macon. Many are calling this the follow-up to the Espinosa case that really opened up the opportunity for states to enact private school choice programs in many states, though not all. Michael Bindis, who we've had before on this show, is the senior attorney for the Institute for Justice, who is involved in the case. He's going to be with us. And we'll also be speaking with David and Amy Carson, who are the lead plaintiffs in the Carson v. Macon case. So looking forward to that. Folks who are interested in school choice, please be sure to tune in 
Until then, Gerard, I will look forward to chatting with you next week. Stay warm, stay well, stay engaged. I will, and let me give a quick shout out to Jamie and Michaela for getting us the plaintiffs to talk about oh, show. Oh, for real. There are very, in fact, I don't know if there's another education podcast that's actually had an attorney and the lead plaintiffs in two Supreme Court cases of note recently on one show. This is why you have to come to the learning curve. You have to come to the learning curve. And Jamie and Michaela, also the unsung heroes, we get to do all the talking. They do all the hard work. We should just own that, right? Sounds, sounds like marriage. Okay, so great talking to you. <laughs> Peace out, Gerard. Have a good one. <laughs>